0: hello and welcome to the american cinema foundation movie podcast i am your host titus and today i'm joined by historian richard Brookheiser to continue our series of conversations on american founders the preamble to the u.s constitution reads we the people of the united states in order to form a more perfect union establish justice ensure domestic tranquility provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. Governor Morris is the man who actually wrote the constitution we read today, gave it its form and its style, made it memorable, He was a lawyer and a financier, and a politician of many different kinds, serving in the Continental Congress, at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, later in the U.S. Senate, and as George Washington's Minister to Revolutionary France. And in between these assignments, he was part of committees and commissions, both at the national and state levels, that decided very important things for the future of America. Though he is not the most famous among the founders, he is the most charming. He was tall and handsome, well mannered, witty, he had remarkable judgment, and beautiful rhetoric. Mr. Brookhiser's biography is titled Gentleman Revolutionary, Governor Morris, the Rake Who Wrote the Constitution. And I have heard Mr. Brookhiser refer to Governor Morris as a guest he introduces at a party, unknown to everyone assembled there, but sure to please, and it is therefore a pleasure to talk about him. Hello, Mr. Brookheiser. Hi there. Thank you for joining me again.
1: Glad to be here.
0: I am, after only a few days, fresh with your story of Governor Morris's life in my mind, and again taken with your prose and your ability to sum up a life, both in details and in judgments, It's the sort of American history I wish I had had when I was a teenager in high school. I only came to these things in grad school.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: But ever since, I have had the pleasure of putting them into the hands of my friends, younger friends especially, and thinking about how necessary it would be to teach people in whatever way, more demonstrative or more dramatic, teach these things to people looking for heroes, really. If the movies are any indication, that's what young Americans are looking for.
1: Mm hmm. Well, that's right. We have all these superheroes, but there, there were some real ones too.
0: Yeah. And they were involved in amazing things that give them a certain moral aura and depth because the predicaments they were involved in were real. And of course, this is the American way. True stories affect us more. Okay. Right. And in the case of Governor Morris, the thing that struck me most of all was how aristocratic and how American he was at the same time, which I think makes him unique.
1: Yeah, that is an odd combination. The one striking thing about his family is he had colonial governors in his family. And this is very rare. The only other revolutionary family like that I can think of is the Trumbulls in Connecticut. But all the other American revolutionaries who were in any way elite, which is quite a number of them. There were rich men. Many of them had had political experience, people like John Hancock and George Washington, Robert Livingston, you can make a long list. But even if they had political experience, it was in the lower houses of their colonial legislatures, not in the upper houses, which were appointed by the colonial governors, tended to be the governor's council. And certainly, they didn't have family members who were themselves governors of colonies. And Morris, one of his uncles, was the acting governor of Pennsylvania, and his grandfather was the governor of New Jersey. Uh, he was a New Yorker, but they gave him New Jersey to get him out of New York because he'd been so difficult in New York and such a pain in the neck for the colonial governor there. So this was the status that Morris grew up with. This is his background. This is his past. He's very aware of it. And so he comes to politics both ex. Expecting to be able to walk into it almost as a family possession, but also with a kind of built-in knowledge of it that's also skeptical. He knows how the wires are pulled. He knows how the sausages get made. He's not overly impressed with it.
0: Yeah, he is what we today would call a realist or a man who thinks about politics without concerns to piety or morality even.
1: Right. But then let's fill out the portrait, and then we can get into the details as they work out in his life. He's also got a romantic streak, and he is capable of giving his devotion to people who truly impress him. He's hard to impress, but once he is impressed, he goes with that feeling. And the great example in his life is George Washington, who is a generation older than he is, 20 years older. He's a commanding military figure when Morris meets him during the American Revolution. Military service was something Morris was never able to experience himself, partly because of a childhood injury to his own arm, and then later in life he loses a leg, so he's disabled but he admires military skill. He admires men who have that. And then here in George Washington, he meets a man 20 years older than he is, commander in chief of the American armies, and his heart goes out to him and he never calls it back. It's an affection that lasts for all of Morris's life.
0: And this is of course a pattern with Washington. He had the capacity to attract younger men, especially those who did not have fathers of their own, and to inspire in them and to inspire them with loyalty and with this call to rise to excellence and therefore to reward their loyalties as well.
1: That's right. And Morris is part of this generation. uh, We could call it the generation of the 1750s. Men born in the 1750s, so they're in their 20s when the revolution begins. Morris born in 1752, Madison 51, John Marshall 55, Hamilton 57, all this cohort of younger revolutionaries and many of them, when they come in contact to Washington, he's either a father substitute, either because they lost their own fathers or had difficult or distant fathers or he's an additional father figure. I should also add to that the Marquis de Lafayette, who is a foreigner, of course, but he's an American by adoption. He's our favorite Frenchman. He came over here to fight with us and for us, and he too has this tie to George Washington, this bond, and he is also a friend of Governor Morris. The three of them all meet at Valley Forge in the really terrible, desperate winter that the army spends there. And that was a formative experience, certainly for Morris.
0: Yeah, Washington plays this part in his life, something to counterbalance cynicism or realism, something that inspires him with confidence, because Washington seemed himself unshakable and competent, whereas Morris's experience of the Continental Congress, of Philadelphia politics, and of American politics more broadly, did not inspire in him much confidence for the future.
1: Well that's right. He has even in the earliest days before the revolution begins when there are the first patriotic meetings in New York City, which is Morris's hometown. The family estate is in what is now the Bronx, but New York City is where he goes. It's where he practices law. That's his home really. And he attends these early patriotic meetings before the war has begun, and he's very cynical as you said about what he sees. And one phrase he uses is he compares the people to sheep being led by the bellwethers, who in a flock of sheep, those are the sheep with bells around their necks, and the ringing of the bells makes all the other sheep follow them. So, you know, Morris is attending a patriotic meeting and he's seeing how it's unfolding and he thinks of a flock of sheep being led by their bellwether. Not very inspiring. Uh, not, Not sort of a Johnny Tremaine story or anything like that. So that's the cynical part of him. That's part of his personality. And we'll also see it again later in his life when he finds himself in Paris at the very time that the French Revolution is beginning. And there he also sees politics unfolding only it's a much darker and more violent version of it
0: valley forge also affords him one of these almost transcendent moments of patriotism of a love of his countrymen because he sees in the suffering of the army through nobility yes that's These men are not rulers, they are not far-sighted, and in that sense they also do not have a self-interest in the way rulers might by their pride in revolution or self-government. Nevertheless, they endure all the poverty and the misery and the deprivation of Valley Forge loyally.
1: That's right. And the reason Morris is at Valley Forge is he is in the Continental Congress. He has been sent as a delegate from his home state, New York, to be part of the Continental Congress, which was meeting in Philadelphia. Then when the British capture Philadelphia, the Congress has to flee, and they have to deliberate in a tiny town called York, Pennsylvania. And Morris is assigned by the Congress to go to the Army's encampment, which is north of Philadelphia, outside the city. This is where they're spending the winter to observe and watch over the British occupation at a spot called Valley Forge, and Morris is to go and to report back to Congress what is the condition of the army. And he is he's shocked, he's appalled, he compares them to skeletons. What we always have to remember about Valley Forge, it wasn't that it was so cold. There were winters that the army spent that were colder. What made Valley Forge a misery was the collapse of the supply system. But everything had to be done for the first time in the American Army. The British Army is a pre-existing institution. It knows what it's doing. It has chains of command. It has chains of supply. You know, sometimes they're corruptly administered, but they're pre-existing. With the American Army, it all has to be improvised on the fly. And at Valley Forge, it just broke down through disorganization and incompetence. You know, the wrong people and the wrong jobs. And the soldiers suffered the consequences of this. They were undersupplied. They were underfed. They were sick. Also, Washington was trying to immunize them against smallpox which he did by a process of inoculation. This was before vaccination was discovered. What you did by inoculation was you gave people cases of smallpox, and if you survived, you would have lifetime immunity from it. Now, some people did die under this process, but the rate was much higher. Smaller than catching it. So Washington realizes he has this army of people drawn from all over the United States, so you get a mixing of people and pathogens, and he simply has to guard against an outbreak of smallpox. So, in addition to the sufferings of undersupply, the army is going through an inoculation against smallpox. You know, it's just a terrible situation. And Morris sees this. He reports to Congress on it. It gets him thinking about ways to reform the American government and the way it raises money and how it can raise money better and more efficiently. But he also sees, as you said, he sees their determination. He sees their loyalty. He sees their ability to see this through it's almost pre-patriotic. Patriotic Patriotic is almost too intellectual a form for expressing it. It's just like you're going to bite down, and you're going to do this, and you're going to see this through. And the men have this attitude, and George Washington, their commander-in-chief, has this attitude and helps convey it to his troops and this impresses morris no end and he will never forget either the bad consequences of inefficient government or the greatness of the endurance that the army showed in this occasion
0: governor morris was a practical man and he was always involved in getting things done and in proposing ideas for solving problems he was in fact so practical that if his ideas weren't implemented he was perfectly willing to work with other ideas And that's a kind of selflessness, a dedication to a cause greater than his own pride, of which, of course, he had plenty, even too much. And here with Washington, he sees a man who also feels that he can get things done, that he is one man in charge and he will discharge his duties without flinching or without a crisis of confidence or some kind of catastrophe of anarchy a lack of rule which of course threatened both the Congress simply because it was unable to act on the states, and in various ways the army or the conflicts between generals vying for position in the early years of the revolution. There were very many dangers, and there was among them one strong central point that seemed to be able to rule everything within human limits. And that's a great example to have, precisely because it is practical.
1: Yes, the one time where Morris comes closest to erring, to making his own mistake during the whole revolution, is towards the end of it. After the Valley Forge experience, after he's been in the Continental Congress, he doesn't get rechosen by New York State. So he's a private citizen again. And then he goes to work in the Department of Finance for Robert Morris, who's no relation to him. But Robert Morris is a, a patriot. He's the wealthiest man in America. And he has agreed to take on the problem of financing the American Revolution. And so Robert Morris, with the help of Governor Morris, do this for the last few years of the revolution. They raise the money by hook or by crook. They get loans from France. They raise some loans from Dutch bankers. They kite checks. I mean, that's what we would call it today, but that's what they do. And they manage to keep everybody not paid, but paid and supplied enough that the army can go through Yorktown and see that final victory against the British. But then the the Treaty of Paris still has to be signed. Yorktown is October 1781, and it takes almost a year and a half to sign the Treaty of Peace. So the army can't go home. They have to stay under arms because supposed negotiations fall apart and the fighting resumes. So this is the worst psychological situation. You have an army, they're not doing any And they're also still not being paid. They're being supplied better than they were, but they're being paid basically in IOUs and promises. And as rumors leak out that peace is finally approaching, it's finally going to be signed. There's a lot of fear that we're just going to be sent home with a handshake and, you know, what's up with that? And Morris, unfortunately, he meddles in this. He thinks it would be a great idea to use the anger and resentment of the army to compel Congress to get its house in order and several other people are of this mind. Alexander Hamilton toys with this idea as a young officer. There are others thinking along the same lines. George Washington thinks this is bad and dangerous idea. He will have no part of it and he will have to exert all his prestige to talk his officers out of a mutinous threat to Congress. This is at Newburgh in the spring of 1783. So there's an example of the man Morris most admires in the world, George Washington, doing the right thing, even as Morris himself and some of his pals were about to veer off in a potentially very dangerous direction. But, you know, as we've said, Morris is not wedded to his own ideas necessarily, certainly not to his bad ones. When his scheme or his hopes are frustrated, he accepts the good consequences. He accepts the better alternative. He sees that the better course has prevailed. He's glad of that. And 1783, the war finally ends, peace is concluded, the army is finally disbanded and sent home, and Morris has an interval of private life until the next call on his services when a constitutional convention is summoned to meet in Philadelphia in 1787. And at this point, he's been living in Philadelphia, both as a politician and also as a lawyer in private practice, so he gets picked to be a delegate to this convention from the state of Pennsylvania, even though he's a born New Yorker. And so Morris will attend the Constitutional Convention from May of 1787 till September when it wraps up. He takes off the month of June because he has family business back in New York he has to deal with. But briefly before that, and then for the last two and a half months after that, he's in regular attendance. And in fact, he holds the record for giving the most speeches of any delegate. James Wilson gave the second-highest number, James Madison the third-highest number. But our hero, Governor Morris, very well-spoken, very brash, very sure of himself, he gives the greatest number of speeches of anyone at the Constitutional Convention.
0: Before we get to the constitution making of which he had more experience than most of the founders, we see here with the crisis of the army, will they get paid and how should they deal with it, the dangers of being practical men. Morris was not at all aware of tragedy, it was not part of his character, and he was not, unlike Washington, willing to live with this almost necessary injustice. America was financially bankrupt, the Congress was powerless really, and the moral flaws of the politicians in the states and at the Continental Congress could not help or harm really these fundamental facts of bankruptcy. There was no real way to pay the army what they had fully earned. This is one of the tragedies, one of the simply insurmountable obstacles of the period of the founding, and it almost proved a stumbling block for a man of greatness like Morris. It took somebody greater still, Washington, to keep America America, to keep the Congress in its authority and to keep the army therefore under a legal authority without which America could easily have gone the way of so many other political enterprises, noble in the and then catastrophic in the result.
1: Yes, that's right. The only way the obstacle could be surmounted was by making a fundamental change in the structure of government to give it the power to tax. And this is the main impetus for the Constitutional Convention, and it's one of the main things that the Constitution accomplishes. But of course, that all happens in 1787, after the war is done. And you're right, Morris doesn't see the possible bad consequences of his impatience with the flawed system that he had before his eyes. Now, what's interesting and ironic about this is that he knows tragedy in his own life. He had an accident when he was a boy. He knocked a kettle of boiling water over on his right arm and burned it so severely that people feared for his life. They feared for infection, which would have killed him. Obviously, he survived, but someone who saw his arm later in life as an adult described it as fleshless. So this was a serious injury and then after the war in the early mid 1780s, he has a second accident. He catches his foot in the wheel of a carriage that he's getting into and then the carriage starts up and his ankle is mangled and his own doctor is out of town and this happens in Philadelphia. So he calls in other physicians who look at his leg and they say, well, you know, we can't save it. We have to amputate it at the knee and he says, fine, do it. So they cut his leg off at the knee. and then when his own doctor comes back and looks at him, he says, you know, I don't think they had to do that. Great. How would you like that? You lose your leg and then your doctor tells you, oh, you know, maybe they could have saved it. So he's got a fleshless arm and he has a peg leg, even though he's, you know, tall, he's handsome. Otherwise, he's a good enough physical specimen that he'll be used by the French sculptor Houdon as the body model for Houdon's famous statue of Washington. But he has these sufferings in his own body also his family situation during the war some of them were patriots, some of them were loyalists. Morris's mother was a loyalist all through the war. He saw her twice. He had to get passes from both sides to cross, you know, the lines of the troops to visit his mother. And, you know, she had a rough war. She was living uh, in British-occupied New York, and her own estate was plundered by other loyalist troops. I mean, it was not good. But he's very sympathetic with her. He's very consoling. So he knows tragedy in his private life. And person to person, He's always sympathetic about people in trouble, always willing to help them and able to help them because of his competence and his own personal wealth very often. But politically, he can go off half-cocked. That is true, and we can see that again other times in his life. But so let's return to Philadelphia in 1787.
0: Well, before that, let's first talk about the Constitution of New York State and the bright young lawyers involved in it.
1: Oh, right. Okay, sure. This is the experience that Morris will bring to the Philadelphia Convention, which is that he's already helped write a constitution. This is for his own state. This is before he's sent to the Continental Congress as a delegate. This is before he's helping Robert Morris with the Department of Finances. This is the very earliest days when the revolution has begun, and New York has to shift from being a colony to a state, which means that it needs a constitution. So, this is produced by the legislature of the newly independent state of New York. And as in most such enterprises, it's not everybody who pitches in equally. There are a couple of competent people who do all the work. And the three in New York are John Jay, later to be first Chief Justice, Robert Livingston, who will administer the first oath of office to President Washington, and Governor Morris. At that point, they're young men. They've all known each other for years. They've been lawyers together in New York. They're personal friends. And they get the job done. And they have some disagreements among themselves. Jay wants to be more anti-slavery than Livingston does. Livingston wants to be more tolerant of religious minorities, chiefly Catholics, than Jay is willing to be. Morris is both anti-slavery and tolerant of Catholics. He wants the franchise more restricted than either Jay or Livingston do. He's not so sure he wants to let everybody vote. But, you know, they compromise, they hammer out their differences, and they produce New York State's first constitution. So Morris comes into Philadelphia with this experience behind him. He's not unique in that regard. There are other delegates who have worked you know, on their own state constitutions, but it certainly puts him in the cohort of the more knowledgeable and the more experienced delegates, even though he's one of the younger ones.
0: In the all-American tradition, the politicians mostly come out of the lawyer class, that's the bar to entry or the small brotherhood, as it were, from which politicians are recruited. But at that time, lawyers are not merely politicians, they're constitution makers throughout the states, including men who weren't at the convention, like John Adams who wrote the Massachusetts Constitution.
1: Right, yes. And, you know, they're also well-read men. So they have read English history. They've read English political theory. Some of them have read French political theory. They know recent European history. And they also know classical history, Roman Greece. They've all read their Shakespeare, they've all read their Plutarch, and the better read ones, the thrown in Tacitus and Livy and so on. So this is the knowledge base they bring to this task, and they have, many of them, personal experience with the problems of fighting and winning the American Revolution. And they've also read their history, and they've read accounts of how a few countries have prospered, but most of them haven't. They've fallen prey to revolutions or disorder or despotism. And so they're trying to steer around all these obstacles.
0: And this is the primary example in American history of the benefits of a liberal arts education, at least in a very public-spirited group and generation. And among these, Morris is certainly the most outspoken and the least inclined to be subtle or pacifying, conciliatory. He is the farthest <laughs> removed from ironic. He is ironic, paradoxical, but provocative. He is willing to stir passions and to even humiliate people with whom he disagrees, not personally, on the issues.
1: Yes, uh, he will let you have it. One of my favorite examples... There was a proposal having to do with the slave trade. You know, How would the slave trade be treated under the new constitutional system? The states of the Deep South wanted it to be continued for a period of time because they felt they were undersupplied with slaves and they wanted to get stocked up on slaves. Virginia felt it had enough slaves, although it was a slave state, it was anti-slave trade, and then as you move further north, the number of slaves diminishes and the sentiment against the slave trade increases. So there's this discussion, and what should we do, and how should we say it in the Constitution? Morris makes a motion saying that the importation of slaves into the states of North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia shall not be prohibited for X number of years. And then he blandly explains that he simply wants it known for whose benefit this is being done. But if anybody is offended, he will, of course, withdraw his motion. Well, of course, people are offended they're willing to do this right, but they don't want to admit it, because already there is a movement against the slave trade, which is throughout the Western world. And even people engaged in it feel some guilt about it. So they would rather have the kind of muffling language that the Constitution finally does have. They never use the word slave. They speak of the importation of persons. And this was very deliberately done. But so here's Morris willing to just brush this all aside and say, okay, you people want slaves in the Carolinas and Georgias, so let's say so. And he's just doing this to be provocative. And then there are four quick speeches. Oh, no, this is terrible. We shouldn't say this. And then he withdraws his motion. So that's an example of him just yanking the chains of his fellow delegates.
0: And these debates are among all learned and fairly responsible, sometimes incredibly important and thoughtful people who made America a political regime. But they are not polite debates. And these people are as capable as any politicians or indeed Twitter critters today to say shocking things, even just for the sake of it.
1: Well, that's right. And it makes it interesting, given that this is an element in his personality, that when finally the deliberations are done and they have a draft of the constitution that they want to have, and it's given to a committee of style to put it in its final form, The member of that committee who is given the job of doing it is Governor Morris. Provocative though he is, arrogant though he sometimes is, he's impressed his fellow delegates enough with his intelligence, with his eloquence, that he's the one who gets the job. The Committee of Style has five members. There's the oldest members, a man from Connecticut named William Johnson. Then also on this committee are James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and a young delegate from Massachusetts named Rufus King but the fifth delegate is governor morris of pennsylvania and he is the one and we know this both because Morris says so and also because madison said so later in life of these five guys he is the one who gets the job to take the final draft of the committee of detail which summarized all the decisions that had been voted on and he's supposed to put it into its final words and if you get a copy of the draft of the Committee of Detail and compare it to the Constitution that we now have, that Morris wrote, that he edited, you can see what a nice job he did. He eliminated repetitions, he smoothed things out, he gave a polish to the whole document. This is a trivial example, but it's an example of what a good editor he was. In the draft of the Committee of Detail, there were three separate articles. One said, the executive power shall be lodged in a president of the United States. And then number two said, the legislative power shall be lodged in a Congress. Number three, the judicial power shall be lodged, etc. And then other articles described what those powers were. Morris got rid of those three articles and just made those opening statements of the articles describing all the powers of these branches. You know, the draft of the Committee of Detail had 27 articles in it. Morris shrinks it down to five just by putting things together, cutting out excess verbiage, doing what a good editor does. Then the original thing he does, the creative thing he does, and he's not asked to be creative, and he is editing it. The decisions have already been made. They're given to him to polish. But the one creative thing he does is the preamble the little paragraph that introduces the whole document. And he really didn't have much to go on there. What the Committee of Detail gave him was just a list of all the states, you know, the delegates of, and they listed all the states from north to south. Well, so he fleshed that out with that little paragraph-long essay that is now the preamble to the Constitution, which is almost a little essay in government. This is what governments do. This is what we want our Constitution to accomplish. Here it is and if you analyze the language and look at it, there are some alliterations in it, there are some rhymes in it, it just ties the whole thing together and makes it flow. It's a very lovely piece of writing for what is a committee document, right? They're not known for being beautiful. I mean, the only beautiful one is the King James Bible, but this is a committee document to which he added a real polish, and James Madison, You know, and he and Madison would not get along politically in the future after Philadelphia. But when Madison is an old man, he said in the finish and polish of the Constitution is really owing to Governor Morris, who did the final draft. We couldn't have found a better person to do the job.
0: Yeah, lawyers are not famous for eloquence in the writing in any sense in which non-lawyers could subscribe to that judgment. But the American Constitution is unique for that reason, precisely because it is readable by laymen as well and has all sorts of inspiring and even poetic touches throughout that make it attractive, that give it even more beauty than you would get simply by thinking about the relationship between the different parts. But that too, the form of the Constitution, the articles, their order, their ode to Morris, and they show a capacity for integration, for thinking out a coherent whole, and given that this was meant to last, long beyond the lifetimes of the people involved in it who would know it intimately, is a very important thing. Just like avoiding to enumerate 13 states, which is not just clunky, but it's also in a sense a problem because America would be integrating many more states, some of them very, very soon after the war. It's important in that sense not to privilege the original states over the others. That's right. All of these things come out of Morris.
1: That's right. So it's we the people of the United States of America. It's all of us. Now let's send Morris to France because this is the second act of his life and he's almost unique in having uh, front row seats at these two great revolutions of the end of the 18th century. You know, both of them together, in a sense, they make the modern world. A few people play roles in both, Lafayette, Thomas Paine, Jefferson very briefly at the beginning of the French Revolution. But Governor Morris goes to Paris in February of 1789. This is purely a business trip. He doesn't have a political idea in his head. He's going to help superintend the affairs of his sometime partner, Robert Morris, who is an international investor and has clients and deals in France. And Robert Morris needs a man on the spot to look after them. So Governor Morris goes to Paris, February 1789. He's always wanted to go to Europe. One of his uncles went to Europe. This is a dream that he's had. To him, it seems like, oh, sophistication. Finally, I'll go where the arts and letters, you know, social life, this will be great. And in a lot of ways it is. He's well connected. He met a lot of French officers during the revolution. He's charming. He knows French. He has French ancestry, he learned it when he was a boy, so he fits right in. But the in that he's fitting into, it turns out, is France on the edge of its own revolution. Governor Morris attends the opening of the Three Estates, which Louis XVI calls to try and reform France's financial system. He goes to Versailles when the estates meet, he gets a sunburn because it's a very sunny day. He sees that although the king is cheered, the queen is not. And he writes in his diary that there was the pang of greatness going off. So he sees even then at that early date, big things are changing. Then after the fall of the Bastille, uh, he goes out the next day to the Place louis XV, where the Bastille stood and it's already being torn apart. Uh, He goes out with his girlfriend, who's this French countess, and they see the destruction going on. And again, you know, he writes in his diary, well, maybe this will convince people at Versailles that something important is going on. And then shortly after that, he's out for dinner at the Palais Royal, which was a place in Paris that had both restaurants and also places where people could meet and politic and speechify a little bit. It was kind of a free zone because it was owned by the Duc d'Orléans, who was a royal duke, and he had certain prerogatives, and and he kind of softened the censorship in this one spot. So Morris is there, and he's eaten, and he's waiting for his carriage to go home, and while he's standing there, he sees a crowd coming along, and they're carrying a pike, and on the pike is the head of one of the ministers of the current government. Then the rest of his body is being dragged along behind it. And then Morris later learns that the head and the body were presented to this man's nephew, who was then also beheaded and paraded around. And again, he writes in his diary, he says, gracious God, what a people. Now, this is a man who's lived through the American Revolution. He's been to Valley Forge. I mean, he knows what war does. He knows what war can do. He knows what revolution can do. He knows about upheaval, but he's never seen anything like this. This is new. And we get this from this diary that he kept, which is a very valuable document. It's fascinating reading. It's a little bit like the stories of Alan First about the run-up to the Second World War. It's like a you-are-there report where the world is spinning out of control. You know, day by day, it goes on. He gets up in the morning, he'll write a report for Robert Morris, he'll go out, he'll meet, you know, someone for a noonday meal, he'll come home, he'll do more work, he'll see his girlfriend, maybe he'll call on Lafayette, he'll socialize, he'll do this and that. And life goes on. But then he sees a head on a pike. You know and then the next day more reports more letters more dinners etc cetera, etc cetera. but then he sees something else and so the revolution intrudes on his consciousness and he writes this down and he notes it and you get this sense of this whirlpool that just begins to suck everyone and everything down in it and reading these diaries which were republished in 1939 by his great granddaughter it's out of print you can buy them online fascinating reading. And he's there seeing it all. And he's also, and not just seeing it as an eyewitness, again, he's pretty well connected. He knows people who are in politics. His girlfriend, I've mentioned her a couple of times. Her name is Adelaide de Flau, a young countess. Her husband is, I think, 35 years older than she was. She was married off to this guy. Her main lover and the father of her son is Talleyrand, the former Catholic bishop excommunicated for swearing an oath of loyalty to the French revolutionary government, becomes a revolutionary politician, and then will have a long and storied career as a French diplomat through many changes of government. But when Morris meets him, he's a youngish revolutionary, and they're both lovers of the same pretty talented young woman. He meets the king and the queen. At some point, he is appointed minister to France. The previous one was Thomas Jefferson, who leaves at the end of 1789. And then there's a gap before George Washington fills the vacancy, and the man he fills it with is Governor Morris, whom he met in the Revolution, and who has been writing in private letters describing, you know, what's going on. And so Washington decides, well, here he is. He's on the spot. He has his finger on the pulse. I might as well make him the minister to France, which he does. And Morris is the only diplomat to stay in Paris through the whole reign of terror. This is because we don't break relations with France. Every European country does. So all their diplomats are recalled. So Morris remains. And he has diplomatic immunity, but You know, accidents can happen, so there's always the danger of that. There's one night when, banging on his door, comes the leader of the local section, the revolutionary responsible for his neighborhood. And he says, we have a report you've got guns in your house. We have to search your house. And Morris says, there are no guns in this house. This report is false. I want your name. And I want the name of your superior because I'm going to complain about this. I'm the representative of a friendly nation. This is outrageous. And he bluffs the guy out of it. And then the next morning, the man's boss shows up and apologizes and says, oh, you know, sorry about that, but you understand it's a revolution and mistakes get made, but we'll see it doesn't happen again. Now, Morris wasn't hiding any guns in his house, but he was hiding some aristocrats. There were people fleeing the guillotine in danger of their lives, he took them in. Not the only occasion when he would do that, but he was able to save their lives by, you know, putting on his best, arrogant, aristocratic manner and saying, you know, get the hell out of my house. So this is where he's living. In one of his letters, he compares it to living on a volcano, and then it becomes a volcano interruption. And there he is, and he sees it all. It's a fascinating experience to read about, very sobering for him. He never thought the French Revolution would work. He just did not think the French had enough experience to rule themselves. He's kind of a cultural determinist, or we might now call him a foreign policy realist. Yes. He does believe in rights, but he seems to think they're nationally or maybe even ethnically restricted. Maybe there's just something too ardent about Frenchmen, too impulsive about them. Can they really be free? I mean, this is the doubt that he has. He likes the French, but he just thinks they lack a certain seriousness, a certain gravitas, a certain experience. So, how can this end well? He just doesn't imagine that it can end well. And, you know, it's a serious point because. France has had five republics and two dynasties, two empires, and fascism. I mean, it's a great country. It's a free country. It has been for years and years. But it certainly had a turbulent history. And Morris would have said, yeah, well, what do you expect?
0: Yeah, he was drawn to Europe and loved Paris because of his own aristocratic ambitions and aristocratic tastes. He lived among the high and the beautiful, and he was enchanted with them. But he never lost his judgment, and he was perfectly able to see how ignorant and how stupid the aristocrats were, how little able to comprehend events, and how little able to govern. He thought they were essentially useless.
1: That's right. You know, he compares some of their intrigues to the petty intrigues of chambermaids and valets. You know, those are the aristocrats, that's the old order. And then the revolutionaries coming up, he just thinks they don't know anything. I mean, they're just these half-baked lawyers, a lot of them, just like him, but with no experience of government, no family experience of government. They're all just trying to wing it with nothing to go on except ideas and theories and then impulses, which carry them away. So he stays in France, he stays through the reign of the terror, through the fall of the Jacobins, and then finally, the French ask the United States to recall him. We have recalled their minister to the United States, a man named Citizen Genet. That's a whole other thing too complicated to get into, but he was an obnoxious minister to the United States, so we asked France to recall him. And then in return, they said, well, we want you to recall Morris. You have to send a new guy. So, at the end of 1794, Morris leaves France, and then he spends the next few years going around Europe in the start of the Napoleonic Wars. He goes to England, he goes to Germany, he goes as far east as Vienna. He sees a lot of the old order as it's being pulled down and pulled apart. He hooks up again with his girlfriend, who has also had to leave France. Her poor cuckolded husband is guillotined. She manages to get out, and she and Morris meet up again in Hamburg, where she has gone as a refugee. She becomes a novelist, a successful novelist, Madame de Souza. She marries, and that's her married name, under which her novels are now filed. And they had a vogue. One of the characters in War and Peace is reading one of her novels. So, Morris spends some time there in Europe, and then finally he goes back to the United States. And, well, we could talk about a couple things in the United States. The most creative thing he does, and this is very visionary in a surprising way, he has seen in Europe some canals. He saw the canal in Scotland that connects the North Sea, the Firth of Forth, to the west coast of Scotland. So it bisects Scotland at its narrowest point. And he thinks, suppose we were to do something like that in the United States. It plants the seed. And then the flowering of this seed will come in the 18-teens when James Madison is president. And New York State decides to dig a canal that will link the Hudson River with the Great Lakes. This is the way through the Appalachian Mountain chain. There's a gap in upstate New York. It's a long space, but relatively flat. And New York is willing to take this on. And the two New Yorkers who push this are DeWitt Clinton and Governor Morris. This is Morris's final gift to his country, his final gift to posterity. He saw this years earlier, the potential of such a thing. It just slashes the cost of transportation. It lowers the prices of the agricultural produce of what we now call the Midwest. It was then the old Northwest. It can go from Ohio, from wherever the Great Lakes reach, out to New York City. It increases the prosperity of the Midwest. It increases the prosperity of New York City. It really puts New York City on the road to being a great world city. And this was a project begun by DeWitt Clinton and Governor Morris. Morris doesn't live to see the canal finally completed, but it was their foresight. And so along with the Constitution, we owe that to him.
0: That and the grid of Manhattan, when New York was becoming America's greatest city.
1: That's right. That's right. New York City thought, well, gee, we're going to grow. You know, we're not going to be at the tip of Manhattan forever. We might even cover the whole island. We better have a street plan. So they give it to a committee. Morris is one of the members. And he writes the report and they come up with the grid which, you know, it's kind of dull, it's kind of regular, but that's the grid we still have. And the one point they made is right-angled lots mean right-angled buildings, and those are the cheapest to build and you can fit the most into a space. So we're not going to be like Washington, D.C. with all those fancy circles and spokes and odd lots and whatnot. The hell with that. We are going to have a very practical, plain, right-angled city here. And you put that together with the Erie canal and it fills up.
0: And of course, America has followed the simplest, most rationalistic and abstract grid to quite impressive successes in urbanism.
1: That's right, yes. I mean, there are lovely things about Washington, D.C., but that street plan, you know, if you've ever been in a cab there, it's still kind of a nightmare. Not that cabs in New York are necessarily better in rush hour, (laughs) but it's easier to comprehend.
0: And to close, maybe let's talk about the comparison between Hamilton and Morris. They were friends. Hamilton wanted him to co-author what would become the Federalist Papers with him, and they had very similar interests. And in many ways, Hamilton ended up doing so many of the things that Morris had been trying to do as part of the Continental Congress, a national bank, the establishment of credit, and the foundations of the American economy, just like the Erie Canal also fulfills Hamilton's ideas about commerce, industry, opportunity, and thriving for all Americans.
1: Well, I think the big difference between them is that Morris had an ability which Hamilton didn't have which makes Morris less useful as a public man, which was that Morris could really leave it alone. He was willing to work. There were times he was called upon to work in the United States and also serving his country in Paris. He could put his nose to the grindstone and he could be very productive. But when the call passed, he was happy to go home. He was happy to enjoy himself and to enjoy his life. So many of the other revolutionaries, and we benefit from this fact, they never go home. I mean, this is their life all the time. This is what they're on the world for. This is what they're doing. So in a way, it's a shortcoming of Morris's, but I think it was also personally a benefit to him. It added something to his temper that made him accepting of daily life, eager to enjoy it, always willing to help friends of his or even people he didn't know so well who were in distress. It adds a kind of mellowness to his personality that I find very attractive. And finally, after you know years of girlfriends and affairs on two continents, he finds a woman for him, 25 years younger than he is. She's his housekeeper, but she was a Randolph from Virginia, so she was of a proper origin anyway. And they marry, and he has a son. So there's a happy ending for Governor Morris.
0: Yes, he had a genius for private life, missing in many others, and not just because he enjoyed it. He worked hard to make money, he spent it to his pleasure and to his taste, and was very good at both.
1: That's right, so maybe we should leave him there. I think he would enjoy being left at that point.
0: Yes. Thank you again for a wonderful conversation. We have covered a second of The Great Federalists, and we should perhaps continue with this series We have Adams to cover, the 4th Chief Justice, John Marshall, and a few other men who in certain ways have been forgotten because their party failed, but made great contributions to the Constitution and to America.
1: Yes, for a party that failed, the Federalists did an awful lot. So they're worth revisiting.
0: Thanks a lot, sir. Okay, take care. Have a good day.